Second Peter chapter one. And uh, man, it's a blessing to get to be here. This is one of my favorite passages of scripture. And I was thinking when I was sitting there, it seems like I'm always saying that. But uh, I, I'm I'm selfish, and I preach on my favorite passages of scripture a lot. Amen. And uh, if you want me to preach on your favorite passage of scripture, uh, hundred dollars goes a long way. I'm just gonna say. But uh, <laughs> taking requests, amen. But uh, I, I was thinking as I was uh, as I was reading through this passage of scripture. It's one of my favorites, so rich with truth. And uh, I just want to share some things that God laid on my heart in it tonight. Second Peter chapter one. Let's begin reading in verse number one. We'll read down to verse number eleven. The Bible says, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. To them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God. You know, that's the only way we can obtain that faith. Amen. Through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what he desires. He says, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. People all the time talk about needing grace in their life, wanting peace in their life. Well, how do we have that? Well, through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Why is this possible? Well, he says, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. We already have everything we need to live the life that God has for us. It's not waiting to come out on the next bestsellers list or in the next podcast. We've already got everything we need to live the life that he'd have for us to do. Where do we get that? Well, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great, and precious promises, that by these, by these promises, ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind, cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be in the house of God. Pray that you take these next few moments, Lord, consecrate them under your purpose, under your heart's desire, Lord, under your wishes being exercised in our life. And may we be obedient hearers and doers of the word that you might be well pleased with us. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to preach to you tonight on a phrase that is found in verse number 10 in particular. And we'll look at the entirety of these verses that we've read, or most of them at least. But I want you to notice verse 10. Uh, the Apostle Peter, and we preach so much about Paul once or twice tonight, I'm going to say the Apostle Paul when I mean the Apostle Peter. All right, so go ahead and just mark her down. I, I've, I've warned you already. But the Apostle Peter says this, Wherefore the rather, brethren, this is what he wants, this is what he's praying for, this is what he desires for them, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. 
I want to preach to you tonight on making your calling and election sure. You know, uh, very often this passage, this phrase, has been used as a springboard and as a starting point for teaching some rather unbiblical things about God's dealings with humanity. And uh, I'll go ahead and tell you just exactly who typically abuses this. We use the term, when we, when we talk about them, of Calvinists. Now, you may have heard that terminology a time or two, and you may not know what a Calvinist is. You may not care what a Calvinist is. I'll tell you, there's better things to care about, amen? But uh, Calvinists are essentially people that follow a line of dogma that uh, found its origin in a man by the name of John Calvin. John Calvin was what most historians would call a reformer uh, during the 1500s. And uh, John Calvin believed essentially this, that God's sovereignty demanded that every happening and occurrence in life be an outflow of his direct will. In other words, that things did not happen, but what God wanted and ordered those things to happen. And this extended all the way to the matter of salvation, such that they would say that there are certain people that Christ died for and other people that Christ didn't die for. And they would say that everybody that God wants to be saved will be saved. And uh, that those that die in their sins and die and go to hell do so because they were never chosen to go to heaven in the first place. Uh, There's a lot more to the dogma and idea of Calvinism than simply that. But certainly that's the touchstone of what they believe and what they preach. Certain people are foreordained, predestined to heaven. Other people are foreordained, predestined to hell. Now, I, I probably don't have to tell you tonight the 150 million verses that there are to refute that notion. Uh, but certainly we could just in a cursory glance notice a few. The Bible says that he's tasted death for every man. The Bible says whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Uh, the Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And not just on this point of, uh, of their dogma, but they, they have a little acronym that is often associated with it called TULIP. Uh, denoting their five key doctrines, and every one of them, you, you can pluck the petals off of their entire tulip with the Bible. You can go through and refute every single one of them with the Word of God. But when we come to this passage, they'll often take this verse and use it to convey some things that are not biblically true or biblically cohesive with the rest of what Scripture teaches. In verse 10, where it says, "...to make your calling and election sure." They would have you to believe that it means that we need to make sure that we're saved. Uh, Now, let me say this. I do believe we ought to make sure that we're saved. We ought to settle the matter of salvation before God. But that matter is not going to be settled through some effort or good works on your part or my part. Because our salvation cannot be procured. It can't be purchased through good works. It's by grace that you're saved, through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's also, to me, always been a little bewildering that the Calvinists would run to this verse. Seems to me like if you believe some people just going to go to heaven, some people just going to go to hell, it wouldn't make a lot of difference whether they made their calling and election sure either way. Seems like you would just say, just live however you're going to live and however you're going to turn out, we'll just blame that on God. Amen. But uh, they'll often uh, zero in on this word election. And when they talk about election, they uh, mean by it the idea that God elected or selected some people to go to heaven and others sadly were left out. By the way, you'll never meet a Calvinist whose kids are not all elect. 
All their kids are always elect. They're, they're safe. Your kids maybe not, but, but their kids are always, them and their spouse and their family, they're always elect. But, you know, I found this to be true. The greatest antidote to error is truth. And a lot of time is often wasted trying to uh, field yourself on the battlefield of the heretic and trying to trap them through their own strategies. And you can waste a lot of time doing that. It's kind of like whack-a-mole. There's people spend all their time. This week we're going to do a series on this cult. This week we're going to do a series on this cult. We're going to talk about this group. We're going to talk about that group. And, you know, I'm not saying there's not some value in that, but I found the greatest antidote to error is truth. If you just preach the Bible, the Bible will address all of those things. And we could give example after example, but if you've been in our Sunday school class in the book of Ephesians, we've talked a lot about that. Because Ephesians chapter 1 is another place the Calvinists will use. But if you just read it and interpret it in the biblical context, you can see very readily that that's not what's being dealt with. And in the same respect, when you come to Second Peter chapter 1, the question has to be asked. I, I, I think I can say definitively, I think everybody will agree with this, knowing what the Bible says, knowing the Bible does not teach this notion that some people are destined to heaven, some people are destined to hell, and man has no choice or say in that matter. We know that's not true. So then the question has to be asked, what is this passage talking about? If the call here is not the call to believe in Jesus Christ, then what is this call? If the election is not being selected to go to heaven, then what election is being referred to here? Well, if we use the Bible as its own commentary, we very readily find the answer to that. Uh, For instance, when we talk about a calling, and there are many callings in the Bible, but what calling is Peter talking about? Well, he's told us back in verse 3. We didn't even have to leave the chapter to find the answer to this. He says in verse 3, according as his divine power, God's divine power, hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Is God calling sinners to the cross? Absolutely he is. Is God calling Christians to share the gospel and to witness to others? Absolutely he is. But the calling that Peter is talking about is neither of those callings. Rather, he's talking about the very calling that Peter, or that Paul would talk about in Philippians chapter number 3, uh, about pressing towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He's talking about the calling of you unto God to a life of consecration and holiness. To be found unto His glory and to be found walking in His virtue. Let me say it this way. The calling here is speaking of your testimony before the Lord. Has it ever dawned on you that you have a testimony before God? God has an opinion about the way you're living your life. He has an opinion about the choices you're making, the places you're going, the things that you're doing. And it should be of preeminent importance to us as believers to say this. I want to do all things well-pleasing in His sight, and I want to have a right testimony before the Lord. Peter is encouraging these believers to have a right testimony before God. But then he uses this word, election. And here again is a place where a lot of times people get tripped up. The word election, it simply means something that is chosen. And that's part of the reason the Calvinists would say, well, see, it's right there, preacher. It's saying chosen to heaven, chosen to hell. No, it never says chosen to heaven, chosen to hell. What it's saying is we are a choice people. If you go down to the grocery store, get your co-signer, go by the bank, go down to the grocery store, (laughs) 
and go to the meat section, you'll find that there are certain cuts of meat that are choice, prime choice, USDA choice. And it's not saying this meat has been chosen for you, but rather it's saying it is unique, distinct, it is of a higher quality than the other meat that is sitting there. In the same respect, God would call Israel in the Old Testament his elect people. They didn't always act like they was elect. But God had set them apart for a distinct purpose and a distinct cause. Do you know, actually, if you go in the Old Testament, you'll only find one occasion where an individual is called elect. And it's in the book of Isaiah, and it's talking about the Messiah prophetically. And it talks about mine elect in Isaiah, I believe it's chapter number 45. You know, funny thing about it, you say, preacher, do you believe New Testament believers are elect? Yeah, you know why? Because we've been put in him that is elect. We're in Christ. God looked down and who he chose was Jesus Christ. That's who he accepted. That's whose righteousness he... I might preach here in a moment. That's whose righteousness he looked at and said, that is sufficient. That passes the standard. That meets my criteria. He chose Jesus Christ. And then guess what? Through faith, you and I can be put in Christ. So the term election, just explicitly, it means a choice group of people. But how is it used in the New Testament? Well, Paul uses it in this way in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. He says about the church at Thessalonica, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. Listen to verse 7. So that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. When Paul talks about the church at Thessalonica and their election of God, he directly ties that to their public testimony before the world. He says, we know how that God worked mightily in your life such that the choice status of the work God was doing in your life was evident. You were set apart. You were distinct. People could look at your life and tell a distinct difference in who you are versus who you were. We could say it this way. When Peter talks about our calling, he's talking about our testimony before the Lord. But when he talks about our election, he's talking about our testimony before the world. That we are a different, distinct, peculiar people in the midst of a dark and wicked world. It's obvious from our text that he's not telling them to make sure that they're saved because he's already said he's writing to those that have obtained like precious faith with us. Rather, what he's doing is he's uh, commanding them to give stability to their testimony, both before the Lord and before the world. When he tells them to make their calling election sure, the word sure has the idea of stability, steadiness. Can I say this, man? We live in a day we need steady Christians. Now, you might think I ought to be preaching this on Sunday morning. Maybe I do need to be because you're here on a Wednesday night. And one of the earmarks, the Wednesday night crowd, most of the time is stability. But I still want to challenge and charge you tonight to make sure that your testimony remains stable. Man, anybody can be great for a little while. Anybody can walk right for a little while. 
But the real evidence of the work of God in someone's life is the it is the history. It is the resume. It is it is the the record of how they've lived their life before the world. Some of the greatest Christians I've known were only that way for a little while. (laughs) And then there's others who maybe in looking at their life, you would not have seen anything that was flashy or evident or or something that people would have noticed. And yet underlying their entire life was a testimony of consistency and faithfulness unto God. I'd say this. uh, If we can't be phenomenal, we can still be faithful. We may not be able to uh, grab two continents and shake them for God like D.L. Moody did, but we can be faithful. We may not be able to do what somebody in days past or maybe what somebody in days to come will do, but we can be faithful. And I would say in your life and mine, if nothing else, we ought to commit ourselves to a stable testimony before the world. Hey, the world's watching you. You better believe the Lord's watching you. And they're, they're formulating an opinion about you and about Christ relative to your testimony. Our testimony, we ought to work. We ought, we ought to make sure that our calling and election is sure. How do we do that? Well, our passage gives us the answer, of course. Go with me back to verse number four. What does it take? What are some principles that are necessary in a person's life? I've known people that wanted to be faithful to the Lord. They wanted to be steadfast, and yet it seemed beyond their grasp. And the reason is because they had a goal in mind, but they didn't have a plan in mind. Uh, they, they had an end goal of what they wanted, and they recognized it as right, but they didn't see the actionable steps and the resources it took to accomplish that. And then there's other people who maybe never set it in their mind to live a life of consistency, but because they put these principles into action, that's what it produced in their life. So what does it take? Verse 4 says this, Whereby are given unto us, as believers, given unto us, exceeding great and precious promises. Now, where are those promises? Well, they're here in the Word of God. So whenever Peter talks about the promises of God, he's not just talking about them in an abstract sense or an ideological sense. He's talking about what the Bible teaches and tells us. Exceeding great and precious promises. Why did God give us these? That by these... Ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Here's what Peter says, and he's already told them that God's given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Now he tells us where they're at. They're here in the word of God. And he's telling us that the only way that we're going to be what God would have us to be is to partake of those promises. Now that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Uh, There are two things necessary for promise to be enforced. One, there has to be the veracity or the truthfulness of the person that promises. In other words, they cannot be a liar. Well, the Bible tells us it's impossible for God to lie. So we don't have to worry about the promises of God being true. They are yea and amen, as Paul says. But then there's another thing. You see, a person can promise something all he wants, but it does not take force and form in this world until someone believes that promise, acts upon that. And here's the word that we use for that. It's the word faith. Let me say this. If you're going to be the kind of Christian God would have you to be, if you're going to have this this testimony of stability, if your calling and election is going to be sure or stable or steadfast, you're going to have to have faith. You're going to have to have a robust relationship with the word of God And not just a robust one, but a reactive one. You're going to have to respond to what the Word of God tells you. Nobody ever became the Christian God desired for them to be by instinct or intuition. 
It is completely contrary to who and what we are to live in a way that would please God. So the only way that can happen in our life is if the word of God takes root and entrance is, I like this word that James uses, engrafted into our life. How does that happen? Well, we read the word of God, the promises of God, and then we trust those promises. What does that produce? That produces a response on our behalf. Peter says here that through this, we become partakers of the divine nature. Man, isn't that interesting? I mean, that's a powerful statement, partakers of the divine nature. How is that? Well, as we lean upon the promises of God, exercising faith in the word of God, it is no more our wisdom or our wishes that are carried out in our life, but in fact, it's God's wisdom and God's wishes that are carried out in our life, such that what we're really doing is we are conveying or communicating the heart and mind of God to a world around us. In other words, as we live and behave and act, It's as though God were living and behaving and acting, but it's not just as though it is in fact that he is. He is living through us. The principle of faith is necessary. Look at verse five. Peter says this beside this. So you you have faith. That's wonderful. We need to have faith. We need to respond to the word of God as the word of God is preached to us. But that's not enough. You say, preacher, that's strange. That's not. No, it's not enough. Peter says, beside this, said it's good that you're doing that. It's good that you go and you sit in church and a preacher preaches to you or you listen to, to, to it on your phone or, or watch it on TV. And, 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 you know, and I don't say that in lieu of going to church. I say that in addition to going to church. And, and you receive the word of God. You hear the truth. And when God stirs your heart, when God comes knocking, you answer. That's good. That's not enough. He says this, beside this, what do we do? Giving all diligence. You know, most of us have a passive relationship with the word of God. We'll obey when God comes and knocks us down and hog ties us with the word of God. But very rarely are we deliberately, actively pursuing God. He says, beside this, giving all diligence, add. Add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. Now, I'd encourage you to get get home tonight, sit down, read through that catalog of attributes and qualities, and study them out, and let God bless your heart. I'm not going to do that tonight. I just want to notice something. If we're going to be the Christian God would have us to be, it's not going to take place passively in our lives. We're going to have to actively pursue God. Let me use this second term. There's the principle of faith, but number two, there's the principle of furtherance. In other words, not just saying, well, I'm where I'm at and that's good enough, but instead saying I'm actively trying to cultivate and develop my relationship with God. It's amazing. Christianity has been cast as this thing that just sort of happens to people. And I don't know if Hollywood's done this. I don't know if it's just been the the ambivalence of mankind towards God. But it's sort of viewed as just this supernatural weather event that just occurs beyond our control. Just a thing that happens to us. One of the things that drives me mad is people talk about revival that way. Like revival is something that... Revival don't just happen. It happens in response to people's prayer, to people's consecration to God, to people's desire and thirst for Him. It's not something that just occurs just spontaneously. 
And likewise, we often view sort of the scaling moments of our Christian life as being spontaneous and outside of the realm of our reach to be able to initiate. But you know, if you'll look clearly back at your life, you'll find that the times you found God, you were looking for God. Except for when you got saved, the times that you found God were when you were looking for God. In your life, it takes a deliberate, purposed, focused diligence in our relationship with Him. I think a lot of the problem with Christianity today is the Christianity that we see is just a passive form of it. It's just barely enough. It's just whatever I'm doing, I'm doing because God has kicked me over and convicted me and I can't kick against the bricks anymore and I just can't live any other way. What a shame, man. Don't we have a God worth pursuing? Don't we have a God worth chasing? Don't we have a God worth diligence? So it's the principle of faith and then the principle of furtherance. But then look at verse number eight. Uh, Peter says this, for if these things be in you and abound, not just barely in you, but they abound. How would they abound? Well, because you're giving all diligence and adding these things. That's why they would abound. If these things be in you and abound, this is what they'll do. They make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I would say, number three, there's the principle of fruitfulness. And it's interesting the language Peter uses because he does not use the terms barren and unfruitful synonymously. And by the way, they're not synonymous. There are plenty of places all over the world that are not barren. Things grow, but the things that grow are not productive. They're not fruitful. And I think in many ways that is a fit description of good, solid, Bible-believing churches in our day. They're not barren, but neither are they fruitful. There's life there. They know the Bible. They know the truth. They, 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 they can teach it. <laughs> they, they know it. They're aware of it. They're standing on truth. But that has not produced in them any fruitfulness. It has not driven them to do anything for God that is appreciable, that is meaningful. Peter says, listen, it's not just that that there be signs of life, but it's that that life be producing other life. Uh, Fruit, we think of fruit as something to be consumed, and certainly I'm thankful that it has that. I'm not anti-fruit. I don't have as strong of feelings against fruit as I do against vegetables, all right? Um, You can't make a cobbler out of vegetables, amen? So... Uh, there's a place for fruit, amen, it's usually under a scoop or two of vanilla, but uh, there, there's a place for fruit in life, and you know, we think of fruit as something that's main purpose is to be consumed, but that's really not what fruit is. Uh, the main purpose of fruit is not consumption, it's propagation. It, 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 the, the reason that the plant casts the fruit is the fruit contains the seed. And whenever the fruit is consumed by a person or by an animal going by, it then exposes the seed that can find uh, root in the soil to produce more. And I fear that we've, uh, well, how do we say this? We've gotten used to church of a seedless variety. We consume it, it's good. But it's not producing anything on the other end of it. There's no... There's no inherent life in it being propagated and promulgated beyond just the pleasure of the consumption of it. And that's why Christianity has been relegated to a spectator sport instead of being something that's activating believers to go out and to win people to Christ and to change the world around them. 
Peter says here, listen, it's not enough just to have life. You've got to have fruitfulness. And we cannot be content with just having a robust and accurate body of dogma and doctrine. That's important. Don't get me wrong. But we have become a museum of doctrine in the West today. Where we think as long as we can can maintain scrupulous records of all of our doctrinal pedigree that we have done everything that Bible Christianity is. Now, I'm not suggesting that Christianity is in any way aided by us casting aside doctrinal truth. It's not. That'll be the death of Christianity if we do that. But I am saying that we must go beyond just merely being an encyclopedia of doctrine and being living, breathing life in a dark, dying world. We say, you say, preacher, I'm not barren. I know, but are you fruitful? Are you fruitful? I know there's life there, but is that life producing other life? I see the principle of, of fruitfulness. And by the way, man, it's, it's easy to dry up on the vine when you don't have any fruit. And as a church, it's easy to just dry up and die when you're not trying to reach people. I, there's not a one of us that thinks we reach as many people as we wish we did. All of us wish we wretch more. We wish that every person we witnessed to fell down in conviction and called on Christ. We wish that everybody that professed faith would come through the doors, join a church, and we'd be able to be blessed in seeing the life-transforming power of the gospel in their life. But the absence of any of those things in the measure to which we wish that they were there is no excuse for us to throw in the towel and give up being fruitful. We're called to be fruitful. And churches begin to die when they become content to be museums of encyclopedia and doctrine. When we're just, we're nothing but a heritage center. Just trying to preserve something from the past. Uh, listen, a museum is a great thing. It has its place, but there ain't no babies born in museums. There ain't no life produced in museums. We ought to be pressing forward. I don't say that to suggest we ought to cast away anything in this King James Bible. But I say that to say it's not merely enough to say, well, but preacher, our doctrine's right. That's great. It should be. God help us if it isn't right. But we ought to go beyond that and say, all right, we've got our doctrine right. Praise God for that. Now let's go out and reach people with this glorious, wonderful truth of the gospel. So not barren, but also don't be unfruitful. So the principle of fruitfulness. Verse 9 says this, but he that lacketh these things is blind. And I like this, cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. In other words, they're blind to the present, they're blind to the future, and they're blind to the past. They're living in such a way as though their present has not been changed, as though their past does not call them to a life of gratitude and service, and as though their future holds no benefit for them, whether they live faithful or not. I'm going to use this term, the principle of faithfulness. It says, cannot see afar off. Why is a man faithful? Because he sees that the end pays more than the present. That's why he's faithful. We're not faithful because it's easy. And I saw a banner the other day, a picture of a banner, a flag somebody had hung up. And I thought to myself, man, that belongs in most uh, Baptist churches. It said on it, we do not do what we do because it is easy. It said we do it because we thought it would be easy. <laughs> <laughs> you ever been? I've been there before. <laughs> I didn't do this because it's easy, but I thought it was. And, uh, you know, a person, uh, they don't live faithfully because it's always gratifying in the moment or because it even pays off instantaneously. In fact, faithfulness by virtue of what it is calls us to look with faith beyond the present 
to what is perspective, to what is promise. That's what we see in Abraham's life, right? Uh, the, the writer in Hebrews says these all died in the faith, not having obtained the promises, but having seen them afar off. They confessed openly, plainly that they were pilgrims and strangers in this world. They were seeking a city to come. And what did that do? It made them faithful in their life. I'll tell you, flakiness doesn't make us what we ought to be. Faithfulness does. And until we grow uncomfortable with faithfulness, nobody should be more bothered by unfaithfulness than than us who are struggling with it. In other words, I should not be bothered more by your unfaithfulness than I am by my unfaithfulness. And I should be more bothered by my unfaithfulness than I expect anyone else to be bothered by my unfaithfulness. It's going to take faithfulness in our life. And finally, and I'm done, look at verse 11. It says this, For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I think words matter. I was talking to someone earlier today. They sent me a message, and they, they want to know my position on different versions of the Bible and the King James Bible and things like that. And You know, I don't get asked that question a lot anymore. I mean, we live in the age of the Internet where you pretty much know what a church is before you ever walk through the door. But this person had asked me this question. They had asked me about specific passages and you know i told him i said you know here's the thing i said there's a lot we could talk about with it but i'm going to make it real real simple the bible is a book of words they're god's words if you change those words then it's you've changed the bible and one of the great acts of gaslighting in religion that has taken place has been the modern versions movement saying their bible is the same as this bible the reason is because then the obvious question is then why would i need your bible And they would say, well, because it's different. Well, if it's different, it's not the same. Which is the Bible then? And I told this person, I I said, you know, it's real simple. I believe that God is specific. I believe his words matter. I don't believe man has the right to go in and, and arbitrarily change God's words. And you can't change the words without changing the Bible because the Bible is the words of God. And as such, you can't have many Bibles in a language because they're all going to say different things. And the natural question then is... So which one is God's word? I'm settled on that. I I don't really. The question is not which Bible. The question is, do we have a Bible? I believe we have a Bible. I believe I'm holding it in my hand. I believe this is the inspired and errant preserved word of God for the English speaking people. I'm settled on that. It's a real simple thing. Words matter. That's my point. Words matter. When we read this passage in verse 11, there's a word here that needs to be noticed. And it's the word abundantly. See, the Calvinists would like to take that word abundantly out. If they did, it would say this, For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Would taking that word away change anything? It'd change everything. Because then what it would suggest is that unless a person did all these things, they couldn't go to heaven. I'm thankful to recognize, mainly because there's times I desperately need this truth to be to be reality. I'm thankful you don't always have to live up to the Christianity that God gave you in order to be a Christian. So words matter. That word abundantly matters. Changes the entire sense of what's being said here. You see, there's some people that are going to get to heaven. And there's some people that are going to go abundantly. You know what I mean? There's people that are saved. They're as saved as you or I am. They're as saved as the best Christian in the world has ever been. But when they get to heaven, they'll have nothing in their life of any benefit, of any value to present to the Lord. And then there's others, far better Christians than me, that they'll go in abundantly. 
They'll go in and they'll have much to bring to the Lord. Much to present before God. Peter says, I'm writing all these things to you because I don't want you to barely get there. I want you to abundantly get there. In other words, let's say it this way. What's this last principle? Well, it's the principle of finishing well. Finishing well. He says, I've written all these things because I want you to realize there's going to come a day that the cumulative efforts of your life are going to be laid before God and you'll have to give an account for them. And when that day comes, I don't want you to go into heaven a pauper, but I want you to go into heaven abundantly. I would say that we have to purpose in our heart that we want to finish well if we're going to finish well. Rarely does that happen in a person's life without them deliberately resolving to do so. Can I ask you this question? When was the last time, last time you gave any serious thought to how you're living your Christian life? When was the last time you stopped and, and assessed it and thought, am I being faithful to God? Am I doing all that God asks of me? In the way that I live my life, am I reading my Bible the way he, he wants me to? Not, not am I reading it more than somebody else. Am I doing what he wants? Am I witnessing the way he wants? Am I pursuing him the way he deserves? When Peter tells them to make their calling election sure, what he's doing is saying, look at your testimony and ask if it's stable, consistent, and steadfast. He says, God wants us to be stable Christians. A double-minded man's unstable in all his ways, not just part of his ways, in all of his ways. And so Peter is commanding us to look and, and to have an honest reflection of our life, an honest inventory, to be truthful before God. Man, it takes courage to be truthful. We're starting to sense and feel that more in our society today. We're starting to feel pressure to be deceptive or to at least in quietude be complicit with the lies that are around us. And sometimes it takes courage to be truthful, but it takes the most courage of all to be truthful with ourselves and truthful with the Lord. What is your testimony before the Lord and what's your testimony before the world? I bet if you're like most Christians, I'm talking about even most good Christians, you would probably look at your life and say, you know, if I'm being honest, there's some areas that I've let slip. If that's true, why don't you purpose in your heart with all diligence to make your calling and election sure tonight? Let's pray together as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. You don't have to wait for a note to be played. If God spoke to your heart, that ought to be enough. Just meet him down here and in the altar. Father, I pray that you'd bless this invitation. And I pray that you'd be glorified in all that's said and all that's done. We ask it in Christ's name.